Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for August 14th, 2018. Uh, we've got another interview today. I know we've had a lot of interviews this month. Uh, I don't really fully understand myself why it's worked out that way, but I hope you guys have enjoyed them and found them uh, interesting. So uh, uh, today I'm going to be talking with Kelsey Atherton, who is a defense technology journalist whose work has appeared... Uh, more places than I can count. Uh, I'll put a link to his Twitter tag in the the show description if you're not following him already and you're interested in things like uh, military stuff, drones, the Space Force. We're going to talk about some of those things later. Um, And also foreign policy from a a left-wing perspective. Kelsey's one of the people behind uh, the Fellow Travelers blog, which is uh, relatively new at this point. blog that's trying to sketch out some broad strokes of a a left-wing foreign policy or what a left-wing foreign policy would look like. That's going to be the main topic of our conversation. But like I said, we'll get into uh, some of Kelsey's area of expertise and military technology toward the end. Uh, I hope uh, you guys enjoy this and you check out Kelsey's work. Like I said, I'll I'll put his Twitter tag in the show description. You should be following him, uh, no question. Uh, with that said, let's get to the interview. Okay, I'm here with defense technology journalist Kelsey Atherton, uh, and we're going to talk about left-wing foreign policy, and hopefully if we have time we'll talk a little defense technology, since, that is, uh, since that's your area. Uh, Kelsey, thanks for being on. I uh, really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Uh, so... Uh, first, the first thing I wanted to ask you uh, is whether you've recovered from the horrible events of yesterday when Donald Trump was so uncouth as to not mention John McCain when he was celebrating the John McCain National Defense Authorization Act. I know we were all shaken up by this, and and I just if you've had, I want to know if you've had time to process your your emotions. I mean, it's it's, it's truly a a great insult to our nation that the thing we talk about is the name of the bill and not literally anything else of substance related to this bill, which, like many bills before, it is one of the largest, if not the largest, defense spending authorized in, oh God, what are we, we're two months away from year 17 of the Forever War? Correct. <laughs> yeah. No, so, I mean, it's, it's really, I, I saw you riffing on this on Twitter, but it's really telling that the thing that is questioned is, right, like the proper name and the proper honor bestowed to the architect of funding and not really any of the substance, which is, Holy fucking shit! We've been at war for seventeen years, right? And we're we're just spending more and more. Like it's not even after seventeen years, we're not drawing down. We're we're still ramping up. Right. I mean, there was I saw, um, and it was Afghanistan is is in particular dense in these stories, um, but they're they're all over. But I saw yesterday two little little tidbits while we while the commentary and while the blob was debating the name of the bill and the honor um page to it is one um is that the uh prisons for holding female prisoners in afghanistan are i think 
um, at 108% capacity was the latest report from Cigar, um, that it's um, that we are beyond Red Cross guidelines for how many you know, women in Afghanistan we can safely keep in the prisons we have for them. Or, sorry, the government of Afghanistan can safely keep in. Um, and then the other thing is that in the fighting over, uh, I believe it's Ghazni, the army relieved a police who had been holding out, um, and the police were excited to get new ammunition, except the police use Russian ammunition, and the army uses NATO ammunition. And this is, again, year 17 of this war. <laughs> well, we're still working out the kinks. It's, it's, we're still in the early stages, really. You know, turning points, turning points, full steam ahead, we're going to get it. <laughs> I mean, my, my reaction to that, this whole thing was, I mean, I, yes, you're, you, it's sort of insane that this is the only thing we're talking about, uh, the, whether or not we properly honored the person for whom the bill was named. But it's, on a deeper level, it's insane that naming the bill that we use to allocate resources to kill people, it, it, like the name, na giving somebody, naming that bill after somebody is considered a great honor, apparently. This is not something I would want to be known for if I were any, you know, if I were a person of prominence in Washington, D.C. And I will say, it is, um, it is, uh, it is fairly consistent. Like, John McCain has never been shy about his interest or his record or his, like, long-standing support for defense spending, which I feel, um, I feel it's a, it, it is at least, like, an appropriate match of, of namesake to, to Bill, but it's really, and in the big thing, and, um, is the, the sheer inertia of how the instruments of foreign policy have been built, and is that we... There are many ways to have a military, and the way, and there are many things it does. But certainly, it's a structure. It's the largest and best-funded implement of American foreign policy, and it's just we operate from the assumption that it will always be doing this, and it has been doing this for uh, my entire adult life. Well, into, and I think there were drawdowns when I was like a toddler um, and in, like, kindergarten. I think that was when we had the... Right, the peace dividend. We really yeah. need to do this. And we haven't had a rethink since that brief window when the USSR imploded. Um, and, like, I can name it, right? Like, I can name one of the big things, right, is we only have... Um, we only have, like, 19 B-2 stealth bombers right now and only as a... I mean, we have, we have more stealth bombers than anyone else operating, but we have this small number of these bombers because... The program was supposed to come online during the 90s, and suddenly the threat it was built to counter doesn't matter in the same way. And so we cut it. And that's like the one time I can point to within my lifetime of that happening. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were other little programs like that. Like there was a submarine program, I think, that, that got mothballed because somebody actually... Sure thought about it for five seconds and said maybe we don't need new submarines in the post-cold war world uh but yeah i mean there's there's those are isolated anecdotal cases there's never been a consistent kind of effort to rethink what we're doing and i i mean i'm joking about the mccain thing because it's just kind of the height of silliness about this debate but it it um it reflected to me, or it, it, it sort of made me think about what we're here to talk about today, which is 
the difficulties, the challenges that are posed in trying to articulate and not even just a leftist foreign policy vision, but an anti-war foreign policy vision. Like it doesn't matter really uh, if we're talking about sort of a libertarian thing or a, a leftist thing. I mean, our, our answers to a lot of questions would be fundamentally different. But just the the challenge of articulating a foreign policy that says, hey, maybe we don't need uh, an $800 billion military. Maybe we can do make do with something much smaller than that and operate in a different way. Is is almost impossible to conceive in a world where you know you have people all across the spectrum who treat the the national defense authorization, the bill that budgets our military, as though it were like sacred scripture, and and we have to be we have to honor it instead of you know having a, a real debate about it. So talk about you know, what you see as the the challenges to building some kind of capacity for a different way of looking at foreign policy? So I think the the fundamental obstacle is inertia. And the inertia comes in a ton of forms. There is there's a lot that's easy to see that like, well we shouldn't be doing this or we shouldn't be doing that. Um and there's there's a there's a ton of ways to point out to, but we like we point out to, right, like one of the big moments in the debate over do we keep supporting the Saudi war in Yemen? And supporting here means everything but directly pressing the trigger pretty much on a lot of their actions. We sell them the planes, we sell them the bombs, we refuel their planes when they come back from bombing missions. Um, even if they hit civilian targets, we're still refueling their stuff. It's um, But to get to the point where like the left angle on foreign policy is maybe we don't refuel the planes of a theocracy that is bombing civilians in a civil war is exacerbating. We have to look at the the entire structure and the big complex and just the, the assumed inevitability of an extensive American military presence abroad that includes having tankers in the area to refuel these planes. There's so much that is built up. Um, I think it's really hard to look at it without an honest accounting, and it's easy. You can look at the raw numbers. You can say we are spending this many billions a year, and we could be channeling that this way, but the difference, the difficulty, um, and really the space that left foreign policy needs to explore is how you get from where we are now to where that spending is not a given, and where the, maybe the global basing, maybe the idea of American ground presence and air presence as universal hegemon to stabilize everything, we have to figure out a way to get to the inherited foreign policy mess and posture to something that is more in line with other values and other American values, other leftist values. There's a whole range of approaches in a way to think about it, but there's just not a lot of thinking about what not to do and how do we get to a point where not doing is easier and the right call. Right. So I want to break this up into two parts, and I want to talk in a, in a few minutes about some issues that, that you think the that people who are on the left and, and are trying to think about foreign policy need to consider. 
but the first the first component is um, more of a a technical component. You talked about inertia and and the the ways that that has sort of created the foreign policy climate that we have in Washington. The inertia comes, I think, in a lot of different forms, and each one is sort of its own challenge to overcome. A few weeks ago, I talked to Ryan Cooper. I know you know uh, Ryan from Mm -hmm. The Week. And he had just done a piece where he sat down and talked with a lot of uh, kind of new lefty uh, Democratic candidates for for Congress and, you know, about on a number of issues and um, wrote a piece about it. And one of the things he mentioned briefly in the piece was foreign policy. And so I asked him, you know, what he found when he was talking to these people about uh, foreign policy. And for the most part, it was they don't really have a lot of well-formed thoughts about it. They haven't given it a lot of thought. And I think there are plenty of reasons for this. Foreign policy isn't a a, a huge political issue. It doesn't poll very highly in terms of people's, you know, why people go out and vote. Um, There's a lot of... Uh, incentive, I guess, if you're if you're a struggling candidate and you're you know you're you're trying to get your message out there, to pay attention to other things because it's just you know you're trying to pick your battles and uh, put your resources where they can be most effective. So that's one issue is is sort of how, you know how do you get candidates to think about this stuff even if it's not sort of immediately salient as a as a major political issue. The other factors are, are things like money. Uh, think tanks, the lack of, of funding, I guess, on, a, on the left. There are a couple of places, like the Institute of Policy Studies, uh, but the big, heavy think tanks on the Democratic side of things are places like CAP that, uh, and CNAS that, that have a more interventionist-minded foreign policy view. Uh, and then, you know, sort of media coverage and the, the way that, that, as you say, there's the, the inertia has created a, a thing where it's just sort of normal to talk about, uh, well, we have an $800 billion military and we use it in these ways and we don't consider, we don't think about why or whether we could do something better. Um, so I think the, the challenge is here, the, like the overarching challenge is how do you get through how do you cut through all of that the fact that there's this big establishment kind of uh layer that that shuts out to an extent uh sort of alternative views and how do you in particular get candidates to think about these things because to me when when you hear when i hear about uh, you know there's a leftist candidate who doesn't have well-formed foreign policy views what that says is they're eventually going to get captured by the the sort of liberal interventionist wing of the democratic party and sucked into that that universe yeah the funding obstacle is is tremendous i think it's hard foreign policy tends to be the the like pet interest of some like very rich donors who then go out and they support think tanks that articulate their vision. Um, and if they're already in the position to fund think tanks, they probably are not super aligned with a kind of perspective that wants to radically change the the way in which America interacts abroad. Um, they're pretty they're pretty plugged in, and there's a lot of like. We see a lot of efforts about, like, how do we, like, stabilize or how do we save the international order and not a lot about, like, well, maybe one of the maddening things is that you can try and sell a treaty like the like the TPP as a international alliance, but it's screwing over people within the countries 
at the same time that it is binding the elites of those countries. And it's tricky because the money to articulate policy is all going to go towards where there's existing money. So it's hard. Um, we don't think we found it. I don't know yet of a funding alternative that can get people to care about foreign policy when there's other, certainly a lot more like domestic issues that people feel more salient that you might be able to like crowdfund policy around. But that doesn't mean the idea space has to be empty itself. I know, um, and this was this was the impetus, right, behind um, behind fellow travelers blog, which is it's an all volunteer effort, which is the the fancy way of saying no one involved is paying and we're showing out like hosting fees and everything out of pocket. It's there to try and just at least have the ideas out there, and not like a slate of like here's our unified principles, but just. What are ideas to the left of the blob that are worth talking about that can change policy that could be how future governments handle issues? And we've covered everything from, um, from like, the right of America's uh, colonial possessions to um, their self-determination either within or without the union, um, transitional justice. We had a thing recently on what kind of international order makes sense so that it makes sense to align democracies against kleptocracy? Is that a meaningful policy that could be enacted? We had something, um, I think, really interesting at the, at present, I think there's something else coming up later soon, but we have something right now about this whole concept of war on weapon states, which is the idea, I think, articulated by Krauthammer, but seen in other policy, that the way the United States can secure the post-Cold War peace is by actively going to war on countries that make weapons of mass destruction, um, which has been an unmitigated disaster. And the, uh, Michael Yohanna, the author of that piece, very clearly articulates that the way to get to disarmament is a way of, like, is through diplomacy and through acknowledging the limitations of the use of force. That's the whole point of disarmament. And so I think you have to, you just have to be exploring it. And we're lucky right now that we have a lot of people who are it's interested in board is really a big combination of how you get people to come up with these ideas and find these things and carve out that space to articulate a new view because there isn't there isn't anything. There's been pieces decrying the need for left perspective on foreign policy and the um, the void of what policy answers are there, but there isn't really a slate of and we don't need like a, a clear slate of policies to offer, but we do need options to the left of the blob because. Without it, you end up with candidates who run on a um, on an anti-war platform and get a lot of inertia on anti-war, and then don't have the staffing or the ideas or the counter-arguments to put forth anything that just responsible steward of the inherited leviathan. I think, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a really good point, and it's it's to me, it's not just sort of the infrastructure to provide candidates with some ideas and, you know, get them thinking on these terms. But there, there's another aspect of that, which is sort of holding candidates to account. And, you know, I don't, I'm not going to dump on uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but she, her flip-flop recently, very famously on uh, Israel-Palestine angered some people on the left, um, and and the 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 problem I think is that 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 just sort of happens 
on social media or sort of person by person. There's no institution that can say, whoa, you know, what are you, you know, what's happening here? You know, tell, tell uh, Ocasio-Cortez to, you know, uh, get, you know, to rethink this or to, you know, uh, ask her why she's changing her views on this. That, that kind of capacity exists for the sort of foreign policy mainstream uh, to, to sort of criticize people for holding divergent views. But I don't think it exists on the... Again, this is more of a just broad kind of anti-war point, but it, it just doesn't exist in that universe to sort of marshal people's opposition to... Uh, war or martial people's support for, let's say, the Palestinians, uh, and and you know criticize candidates on in a systematic way for holding positions that we don't agree with. And it's going to be um, right. And so the alternative to to articulated foreign policy views available for left candidates or even left candidates taking the time to to go through it and find theirs is we arrive at it piecemeal. And we arrive at it in weird places, and it's really hard to make policy and articulate a vision when it's being arrived at individually and in public and with a clear consensus that can be unified in the opposition to talk of, like, well, maybe maybe we just pull out of Afghanistan. Maybe we figure out something. Maybe we find a way. Maybe the ultimate goal is not to figure out how to stabilize something where we've been a where it's been quite unstable for 17 years. Maybe we figure something else out. Um, and there's not... Well, there needs to be that space. There needs to be the time for candidates to get to that. And they need to be able, probably, um, if we're thinking longer term, they should probably be able to get to that before they get ambushed on cable news. Or not ambushed, but just asked on cable news. And it's one of the things is tricky is that the other, like, is that other opinion journals often keep a very narrow range of what foreign policy they see as worth debating. And it's hard when, because the ways you get people to devote the time outside of, like, as a hobby, is you can fund them to write, and you can fund them through a think tank, or you can fund them to write stories. And so if the journalistic outlets or the ideas outlets, we're talking like the Atlantic and the New Republic or the things, and they have different ranges, of course, of what they're talking about, but if they're, if they're unwilling to consider some foreign policy perspectives at all, then it falls out of the discourse and you get people stumbling through questions. Yeah, I'm, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. I mean, you're right. There's sort of a gatekeeping thing that goes on where some things are allowed to be in the discourse and some things are not. And you have to f- fight against that. I wanted to talk about some broad issues that m- you think people who think about foreign policy on the left should be kind of grappling with. And I'm not, uh, we're not going to have a a coherent left-wing foreign policy by the end of this, unfortunately. If anybody's here to listen to that, you're going to be disappointed. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, arguing piecemeal against uh, Afghanistan or our policy in Afghanistan or against the Iraq war back, you know, 15 years ago or uh, against the the support for the Saudis, you, you, you get 
uh, those things are important, and you need to put we need to put forward alternatives to those policies. But it also leads, I think, to kind of a scattered, reactive kind of posture uh, that that maybe uh, contributes a little bit to the the fact that people continue. And you you've seen that, and we, we I've I've seen this online a lot. People kind of asking where's the left-wing foreign policy alternative and it's out there it's just kind of confined it's like buttonholed into the opposition to this policy or that policy instead of being a kind of whole thing um and i, I, I one thing that that i know you you actually retweeted a, a thread about this yesterday and it's something that i think about fairly often is that in addition to sort of talking about the adverse effects of U.S. imperialism and our over-militarized foreign policy and the size of the U.S. military and its footprint around the world, I think that we have to have some discussions on the left about what we would like the world to look like if those things were changed. Like, you can't just sort of leave it at U.S. imperialism is bad. That's sort of the easy layer where you get a lot of people, you know, arguing that yes, this is this is something that needs to change. But the question is, what comes after that? And is it a situation where the U.S. just kind of withdraws, and we have other countries step in to fill the the hegemonic gap, which I don't necessarily think would be better than what we have now. Uh, or you know, do we talk? Can we talk about something that would replace the system that we have now? That's one thing that I think maybe lefty lefty types should be talking about. I wanted you know to get your thoughts on that, and then you know some other things that you think kind of on the broad issue level are are things that leftists should be grappling with. I think, and absolutely, I think one of the one of the the dangers and one of the counterproductive dangers is treating the world as a place where the only country with agency is the United States and the only country with um, bad intentions is the United States. And not that the United States obviously has a lot of agency and it has a lot of influence and it certainly has done, time and again, acted in, in appalling ways or in certainly suboptimal ways, a whole bunch of but we can't just assume that less U.S. means a more just world. And it might. And there might be ways. There might be ways we scale back. I certainly don't think that the, um, like, it's easier to say, right, like, well, Yemen is something, the Saudi war in Yemen is a thing we could probably scale back from and suffer no security consequences and probably have a, a moral high ground if we stop supporting something like that. And then if we look at, Europe, we can say one thing. It's it's one thing to say that NATO expansion was was maybe a mistake. That it certainly led to a much more adversarial posture with the post-Soviet Russian position. But it's a different thing to say, well, we should scale back entirely and let the countries that are immediately in Russia's orbit be influenced by by that. And and maybe there's debates to have. We should talk about what those countries want, but we should talk. But we should be cognizant, right, of the needs within the countries, too. And it's not... I remember seeing something, is that if we want to talk about, like, NATO expansion, leftists in the United States should probably listen to leftists in Poland. What is their concern about 
the state of play. What is what is their stake? Would NATO expansion there empower um, right wing and repressive forces? Would it keep out competing authoritarian forces? Those are conversations to have because we can't just look at it as the U.S. as sole arbiter of evil. But we have to get to a place where we're willing to not just rethink things, but put, put not just scale back, but plot out what does that world look like and what kind of, and this is, I think, really important, is what kind of foreign policy tools are we leaving? One of the maddening constraints of the forever war is that because we keep building this, we have a very status quo forward posture, and there's only so much that can be scaled back in the given 48 years, and there could be more that could be scaled back by legislative action, but any foreign policy vision aimed at aligning the U.S. more with leftist values at home and abroad has to be prepared for the fact that half the time it's possible there will be someone in power who wants to undo everything that was just done. And like the Iran deal is a, a pretty salient example. It's maybe, it's not, I wouldn't put it like a super lefty policy. Sanctions aren't any any ideal vision of foreign policy, but a very a much less built in one, and it got together a negotiations on a non-proliferation stance, and it fell apart because it was dependent on good faith on both governments, and the United States government, as soon as the administration switched, no longer put any stock in that good faith and was not able to demonstrate good faith, and then blew up the deal of its own accord. Um, and any leftist foreign policy has to see both how do we want things to work, and how do we want things to work when we know that they could actively be sabotaged after an election. Yeah, that's a good point. That's uh, that's a sort of extra <laughs> extra thing to be concerned about, I guess. Um, in terms of other things, like it seems to me that if, um, and this gets back somewhat to the question of how do you get the public interested in these questions, and you know, without waiting for, um, you know, the Saudis to blow up a school bus, or without waiting for uh, some kind of horrible attack to get people interested in foreign policy or looking at foreign policy and thinking about it what are some areas or do you see any areas where uh, you could make, you could sort of capitalize on some of the growing interest in uh, more democratic socialism in, domestically uh, or interest in things like inequality and, and the, the way that our society is sort of made up that could pivot to get people looking at the way our global society is set up things like you know talking about inequality which then leads into discussions about corruption and oligarchy not just here but but all over the world um and questions about uh, maybe weapons of mass destruction on a global scale like w when we're looking at you know pointing the finger at at Syria, let's say, for its chemical weapons program, can we can we get that discussion to start talking about why anybody, any country, needs to have these weapons? Are there things like that that you think could you know could be capitalized on or could become kind of important issues and, and that we could get a lot get some interest around? So sure. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna pop at uh, David Cleon for for a minute. Um, he's been pretty steadfast in that the way for progressives and leftists 
to look at Russiagate within the U.S. is not specifically a story about Russia trying to subvert American democracy, but more broadly as a story about how unaccountable flows of capital and stockpile storehouses of capital can be used to meddle with democracies all over, wealth in that quantity and without any safeguards against its involvement is a power unaccountable to people. Um, and it distorts political processes in a way that rewards a, um, a narrow, super wealthy elite and undermines really quality of living and just even self-determination over life for millions and millions of others. And that happens in the United States, and it appears to have happened, have been some influence in the Brexit vote, and we see it in other places. And anywhere you can flood in money to distort a internal election, you pose the risk that what's going to happen is that candidates will not serve people, but will obviously serve the, the wealthy backers. And those wealthy backers could be um, internal industry, they could be external capital, they could be foreign governments. It's hard to say, but that's certainly one way of looking at it, is that, um, is that kleptocracy really threatens democracy across the world, and there should be a solidarity and nations could work together to have um, transparency in capital, to have constraints on it, to have even um, punitive or uh, confiscatory taxes um, on oligarchs who misuse it. Um, oligarchs are just generally a choice societies make, and they don't have to make a choice that continues to produce oligarchs. And so that's one way to look at how we can manage um, a domestic concern with international implications. These are all, I think, you know, <laughs> like I said, nothing. we're not going to answer these questions today, but just things for people, I think, to, to consider as they're thinking about foreign policy and uh, you know hopefully the that's a discussion that can continue at at fellow travelers and in other places uh, to to kind of get some momentum behind questioning our foreign policy i want to now uh do a hard pivot <laughs> to talk to you about uh some technological defense technology stuff uh and of course that means we're going to talk about the Space Force. My question for you, uh, since as somebody who is in this area quite a bit, uh, my first question is, is this actually going to happen, or is this just Donald Trump creating a story that seems favorable to him, or at least more favorable than a lot of news coverage uh, that he he's facing. Is Are we actually going to see a sixth branch of the military dealing with space at some point in my lifetime, let's say? So I think, um, I don't think we're going to see a, a separate, a separate carved out branch of the military um, in the way that we see, like, the Air Force was created um, out of after 1947, it was carved out of the Army Air Force, or the way that we see um, the Marines as even like a a semi-autonomous part of the Navy, or we see um, the Coast Guard as like a sometimes law enforcement, sometimes um, under Pentagon control part of, I guess now DHS, but originally, and was it Commerce? I forget. There was a lot that happened when DHS happened. But I don't think we're going to see something that is such a clear carve out to make a new, a brand new force in that way. 
Um, and partly because I don't think this administration has shown any particular interest um, in follow-through or deep institutionalization of policy. It's been pretty happy to um, use the tools that were already handed to it um, and not so much on cementing anything other than justices. I do think we will see um, a rebranding of some existing parts of the military and perhaps a new standing up um, command the way that we have, um, like SOCOM, right? We have the uh, special forces get a special command that can talk to uh, them all over the world and coordinate all their actions, both with the other people fighting in theater and also with each other. Um, and what we're likely going to get is the existing military space apparatus, which is mostly, um, it's mostly intelligence satellites. It's mostly communications and intelligence satellites put up um, by the Air Force and the National Geospatial Agency, I want to say. And they do a lot of the monitoring, and then they feed that intelligence down to the intelligence services, and they, um, but they're responsible for like making that all happen and then keeping track of what we already have in space. Um, and what we might get is a rebranding of these functions under a new umbrella with some new funding, with a shiny new crowdsourced logo or whatever. Um, <laughs> well, that's the the fact. Like the thing that really gave me pause was they they did this crowdsource thing where you could vote on the logo, but I think you have to make a donation to Trump Pence 2020 to, to actually cast a vote, which kind of made me think maybe this isn't the most serious proposal that uh, the government's ever made. It's a tremendous branding initiative. Um, and it's, it's worth noting that in other, in other countries, right, like France has the aerospace forces, um, and then Russia has its own military wing of the space forces and they tweeted that logo out because the russian foreign ministry is nothing if not good at trolling on twitter um <laughs> but it, it's not an either or here right i think it's a it's a branding opportunity i think it's a fun way to shift the conversation for the administration to something they want and then it's also um a really weird sort of backwards way to acknowledge that the military does a lot of stuff in space we just have a ton of things there. Um, what is the, the, the troubling implication, um, and this is one, I think, that, that should be thought of more broadly rather than just like, oh, are they going to be like Starfleet? Are they going to be like the Galactic Empire? Is that the military's been in space for a very long time, but what does it mean to have a, a like combatant command, right? A dedicated part of the Pentagon to figuring out how we oversee combat and military operations in space, there has yet to be um, shots fired in anger in space. There's been the, the weapons that were put up into space that we know about are like uh, Soviet cosmonauts would go up, and I guess now um, still uh, Russian cosmonauts go up with like a special shotgun for when they crash into Siberia and need to fend off wolves. So they carry that to orbit and back. Um, and then a couple of Soviet reconnaissance satellites we know had a like cannon built in um, because they were manned reconnaissance satellites and they didn't want to be attacked in orbit, so they were planning defensively. But that's really, like, that's rare and that's weird. And we have a sort of a sort of norm of peace in orbit, which is the only way any of this works. If you blow something up in orbit, it creates debris, which creates problems for everything else in orbit. Right. And if you blow up a lot of things, orbit becomes a wasteland. Right. And the United States is the most invested in orbit, but there's, um, but the European Union has its its satellites. Um, China has 
I believe its own satellites. Russia has its own satellite networks, and they're all and um, other and like India is starting to get uh, more invested in space too. So there's a lot at stake in keeping orbit as a place where we put things, and sometimes they're military things, the cameras that like just provide um, up to date information about where things are on the planet. And sometimes there's like commercial things like the communication relay stuff, and sometimes they're both like GPS, um, which is originally there to help ballistic missiles figure out where they were and where they hit, and now lets us figure out where the nearest Walgreens is when we're in an unfamiliar town. And so there's a lot of dual use, but all of this, every single thing we have in orbit, depends on nobody saying, "Hey, you know what would be better." It's just none of this existed, and I blew up a couple satellites. <laughs> um, and Space Force, as a name and a concept and a branding effort, really, really threatens that, because it's not like the military isn't doing stuff, and it's not like they don't know what they're doing or they're not invested in or interested in space. They've been. It's, they've been invested for a long time. But if we're going to be like, oh, well, now space is a war-fighting domain, that means we can expect satellites to get shitty and blown up and... There's a whole lot that could be lost. And that's really, I think, the big thing to worry about. And there's, there's a UN treaty, um, the Outer Space Treaty, which is explicit against no weapons of mass destruction in space and no permanent military bases on the moon. Um, and a few other things, it's less clear about, like, can a satellite go up to another satellite and, like, saw off part of it or something. It's not, it doesn't deal with the kind of smaller scale conflicts, but maybe maybe the world should be just really explicit that we don't put any weapons in space and not just we don't put super exploding weapons in space. Right. So the, the, the stated rationale for this that I've seen is that China has demonstrated that it may have the capability of shooting down a satellite we assume Russia may have the capability of shooting down a satellite. Is this a genuine concern? Like, it, it seems to me that if we get to the point where we're at war with either of those countries and we're shooting down each other's satellites, not only, as you say, is that sort of a, a sort of shooting yourself in the foot because you create debris fields that will inevitably uh, impact your own satellites, but it seems like... If we get to the point where we're shooting at each other's satellites, there's going to be a lot of other stuff going on that's much more immediate threat to human existence than whether or not we have the GPS satellites still functioning. Yeah, so so there's a couple things. Um, the first is that the only countries which we know of that successfully demonstrated satellites and destroyed their own satellites is that China did it and then the United States did it. Um, and I think it was 2007 and then it was in 2008. And both times... The countries were like, oh, no, our satellite has some toxic fuel, and it would be super bad if that toxic fuel survived reentry and then hit somebody, um, and then they got all toxic out of space dust. Um, and so both countries blew up satellites and demonstrated that they could do it. Um, there have been other deorbitings with the same fuel concern that haven't been shot down, so it's pretty clear that the first set of that was just demonstrating military capability. Russia has demonstrated it has a missile that can do it, um, they haven't blown up one yet. Um, India is working on one. And then um, the, other, the other big thing, and you'll hear a lot about this, um, I'm sure, to come, is that there are countries which can like do um, electronic warfare or cyber warfare. They can hack and they can jam satellites and they can take over. Um, 
and and satellite cybersecurity hasn't always been super fantastic. I think it was also in, I want to say it was like in 2007, um, the report, Secure World Foundation as a whole report on like space weapons and stuff. But like the Tomball Tigers hacked the satellite. Um, <laughs> they, they hacked the ground Seriously? Station. Oh um, my God. Yeah. They, they got a ground station. They didn't, um, they were able to like send some broadcasts through it. Um, cybersecurity is now more of a priority, but, um, but you're right, right? If we have a shooting war, if we have a shooting war where the kind of thing that happens is countries shoot missiles at satellites, then the shooting war is probably in a place where the important thing to do is, you know, make your peace with God and say goodbye to your loved ones. Because the range of conventional warfare from, oh, well, they're blowing up some of our stuff in space to we are firing megatons of warhead at each other is not a super long range. There's sometimes, there's always, always, always a chance of de-escalation, but it's not, it's not a great scene. Um, and so it's weird, too, right? It's one of those weird things where you see people super invested in a defense that might matter for the first 30 minutes to three hours of a war after which nothing matters. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not, it's, it's not a happy note. Um, right, right. It is. <laughs> And then the, the and so that's why you'll hit, hear more talk about like well, what happens if like they jam things or they um, do electronic warfare stuff because that we treat differently. Um, it leaves things usually in place, doesn't usually create debris. And then they say like, oh well, they're doing a bad cyber, and then we can cyber them back or we can gain control of the satellite, and no one dies. But it's weird then to put a war posture on space because space is really it's a place we put cameras and antennas and relay points. And we don't, there's not a lot to be gained by being better at destroying stuff in space or by being at fighting it. And it's really, really hard to protect. Um, amateur astronomers can um, track satellites in their backyards with telescopes. Um, there's nowhere to hide, and there's not really a lot you can do because satellites are already like pretty big and expensive and they're hard. And if someone has a missile that can blow up a satellite, there's not, like, a thing you can put on that satellite to stop it. So, um, my last technology question, uh, then, is I'm sure you have uh, seen this story about the attempted assassination of Nicolas Maduro via drone. Um yeah, you, you, you've done a lot of co coverage of drones and sort of their um, increasing uh, availability, I guess, or, you know, this, as the technology has sort of become more ubiquitous. Is this the wave of the future? Can we expect to see, like, insurgent groups using drones more and more targeted uh, you know, maybe targeted to, to major political leaders. Can we expect groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda to, to make more use of drones? Like, how how big a deal... Like, do you see the, the Maduro thing as a sort of sign of, of things to come or uh, an isolated incident? And, like, how, how big a thing is this going to be? Sure. So the Maduro thing is interesting because it's the first time that I'm aware of in the Americas, that a drone has been used, a like a commercial model drone has been used to carry explosives um, in an attack by a non-state actor. But ISIS, ISIS had a workshop where they built their own drones from like from, um, motors they ordered online 
and like wood and foam frames. Um, and they, uh, I forget when, I think it was fall 2016, but I'm not 100%. But they had one of those and it was like shot down and then it was booby trapped to explode when they like, uh, when a Kurd and French EOD team looked at it and then it blew up and killed. Um, and then ISIS has used other drones. They bought quadcopters. They get like simple grenades and a like simple like claw release mechanism. And they put the like backs of like shuttlecocks from badminton on them as a stabilizer because those are plastic and super cheap. And they use those um, in the Battle of Mosul and they've used them elsewhere. Um, so drones are already like a thing that insurgents have and not just have, but have also used um, for explodey purposes. Um, and it's it's pretty inevitable. Um, they're cheap. The uh, some of the quadcopters you can get are like four hundred bucks or so. And then and at that point they're fairly expendable. They don't have a super long range, but you don't need a super long range if you're in urban fighting and you can like hide on a rooftop far away or a window somewhere. And so the Maduro one is I think interesting because um, I mean there's a lot we still don't know about it. Um, but what's really interesting is that was a five thousand dollar drone. Which, like, it doesn't matter super much. If you're getting something for a, like, one-use um, kind of mission, then it can be more expensive. You're happy to, the insurgent group is happy to see what they can do. But it's still weird that they picked that one. Um, and it's weird that, um, like, it had a smaller payload than it could have carried and it didn't get close to it. Um, but it's, it's more, it's part of the landscape of war now is that... Um, the the what I call what I refer to often or joke around as the like the low sky really like what's above people's heads to like four hundred a thousand feet is something that's a contested space now. It's um, insurgent groups can get it. Uh, we've seen American forces deploy with it. I'm sure others have as well. Commercial drones are cheap and pretty effective, and if they're they're so cheap, um, then it makes more sense to have like a bunch of them than, like, some military-specified ones that fly in that same area and perform that same mission, um, as long as you're not, like, worried about the unencrypted channels and whatnot. Um, and that's just, like, that is a part of war. I wouldn't put too much stock in it as a, like, particularly unique threat. Um, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of weapons and ways to deliver explosives in this world, and drones are one of them now. And they're one which require either, like, some skilled piloting, maybe when the autopilots get better, they will get better. Um, we've, seen, we've seen them on the Ukraine front, too. Um, the Ukraine war against separatists there, they've used and dropped drones, and they've like, uploaded things, like, with the company, like, here's the DJI interface, and we use the DJI drone to, like, spot this thing, and there's ways to get around, um, like, hard-coded, um, like, geo-filters on it that say, like, oh, you can't fly here, but then you can block the thing that says you can't fly here. Um, so it's part it's part of war now. Um, it, they're cheap enough that non-state actors can get them, that state actors can use them. And what is missing from a lot of the talk about it is that, unless they're like rare circumstances, like the like the booby trap ones that ISIS would make, is they're not particularly deadly compared to other attacks. They might get there eventually, but they're not like if an if an assassin had wanted to get Maduro and had like a rocket propelled grenade and popped it out of a window. Um, that would have probably been a more effective thing than the drone and probably cost comparative. The drone was flashy. The drone gets coverage. Drones tend to get coverage. Um, in my story about it for C4 ISR net, I described it as like a gimmick drone of war. Um, that the point is really to get the attention more than it was to be an effective weapon. And that's sort of where drones are now. Uh, might change in a few years.
On the military side, where where do you think things are heading? Like I've seen, for example, talk about you know we're heading to a place where you'll see like individual F-35s kind of running squadrons of drones, which helps to uh, get around some of the, by this point, well-known limitations of the F-35, uh, and maybe is the future of, of aerial combat, because you can send a bunch of relatively less expensive drones to do the real dirty work while you have pilots in expensive planes standing off and and managing things is that are things headed in that direction like where's the technology going on in terms of the the high-end military stuff sure so and this is again of course assuming assuming um ndaas uh continue um unabated as they have this is where funding is going is we definitely have seen um the DARPA had a few programs and other Air Force programs about this. Um, the ones I've specifically like written on that I think are um, pretty, pretty difficult, one is uh, DARPA's Gremlins program, um, which wanted to have like a bunch of cheap, expendable drones that you dump out of the back of like a C-130, right, like a transport aircraft. And then it, it flies close enough. Um, it may be there's an F-35 scouting ahead, and the F-35 relays target information back. That information gets loaded onto the drones. The drones can get dumped from the back of this cargo plane. And then you have a swarm of um, low-cost, expendable drones that then blow up some things. And in the videos, it's always like, oh, well, it's this like anti-air missile station, or it's this radar, or it's um, this tank. And it may sometimes be those things, and it may sometimes be like people. But that's, that's one way of doing it. And then the other way um, is like escort drones. Um, Kratos is a company here, and they had a uh, Air Force Research Lab contract, um, and they've stopped talking to the press really a lot about it because the contract got moved along further, so they're no longer at the hype phase and more at the like, done phase. Um, but they had a couple drones which are designed, um, they're based off of target drones, and they're designed to basically be commanded by a like F-35 pilot, where you have a drone that um, that's cheaper, and not cheap, right? Like um, one of them is cost like uh, between one and two million, and another one costs like around three million a piece. So, not money I will ever see in my lifetime. But um, right. the three million one is like a thirtieth of the cost of an F thirty five that will be commanding it. And you have those, and they go out and they do the mission under the control of the F thirty five person. And as these things structured right now, it will be they will fly autonomously. They will like follow. Um, at a set distance, they will do all of this on their own, and then it will be when they have like a target within range, um, there will be a human who says, yes, this is a target you can attack and yes, you can use your weapons on it and then they will go and do that well um, and if the human says, wait a second this is obviously a bus full of school children, we shouldn't do that they can say, no, you do not do that, and then they fly away in theory, that's how it's structured right now, um, and that's one way right, like that is certainly one way the future plays out, where this is what the funding goes to, is that the F-35, rather than being a fighter in the way we think of fighters going back, I got all the way to, like, World War One, it would be a, like, drone shepherd kind of vehicle, at which point its stealth matters a lot more, and its um, small payload matters less, and its high cost is, I guess, less relevant on the military scale of things. Yeah, it's certainly one way war plays out in the future. 
All right. Well, so we've come full circle from complaining about military budgets to talking about what, what the outcome is going to be uh, of all those military budgets. Kelsey, thank you so much for being on. Uh, and uh, the blog is fellowtravelersblog.com. Uh, Kelsey's work is everywhere. Uh, I can't even keep track of all the places you get published, but uh, I will link people to your Twitter uh, in the show description so they can follow you and, and get all the good stuff. Thanks again, Kelsey. Thank you. Okay, uh, I want to thank Kelsey Atherton again for coming on and talking about a broad range of things that I find interesting. I hope you guys found it interesting as well. Uh, I am going to be off for the rest of this week in terms of podcasting. We've got some guests coming in from out of town later this week so i am gonna forego a second episode this week uh but we'll be back next week uh i think with another interview i haven't finalized any plans i've got a a couple of things kicking around uh so hopefully one of those will come to fruition next week uh and then we'll uh you know have another kind of one-off episode to fill in uh, our second episode i think we're getting in we're going to continue this sort of one interview uh one kind of separate episode thing uh, pattern for at least a couple more weeks because i have a, a few people that i'm trying to uh, work through uh, to talk about some different issues uh so yeah that's the that's the plan for next week uh until then as always thanks for listening and take care i'll talk to you soon bye bye